Father, we come before you knowing that you are the one who carries the secrets of the universe. And you have revealed to us things which are going to take place in the future. And it seems like they could happen pretty soon. We ask that you would give us wisdom and insight as well as calmness and serenity in our hearts, even though there is great tribulation that will come upon the earth. You have instructed us not to worry, fret, or be alarmed. And we ask, Lord, that as we go through Matthew 24 and 25, that you would enlighten us and that you would motivate us, Lord, to be witnesses here. For the days are short before you come. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus, on Wednesday, he spent the whole day speaking in the area of the temple, and he would go back and forth with the Pharisees and just offering instruction to those who were there. And it was, I'm sure, a wonderful time of getting insight from Jesus himself. And as he left the Mount of Olives with his disciples, the disciples were just completely amazed at the structure of the Temple Mount. And they asked some questions of him. It's really, it, it's one question in three parts. And it's the longest answer to any question that was ever asked by the disciples that we have recorded. And the name of this portion of scripture is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave the answers and they, and they asked the questions coming down from the Temple Mount to the Kidron Valley and they're walking up to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sat on top of the Mount of Olives looking back towards the city of Jerusalem, the, the Temple Mount area from the east side on the, again, the, uh, Olivet, the Olivet Discourses on the what is it called? It's the um, Mount of Olives. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <clears throat> so G- when Jesus spent all day there, this is recorded in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 1. Now, because these chapters are prophetic in nature, over the centuries, there has become quite a bit of a controversy. Has this already taken place Is this something that is the future? Is it something that has been split into several parts? And I believe it is something that is yet future. It is not something that has already taken place. And by the way, that particular interpretation view of Matthew 24, 25, Luke chapter 21, and Mark chapter 13 is the preterist view. I'm not going to get into that today, but I will. And the preterist view just basically states that everything written in the book of Revelation, Matthew 24 and 25, it is already all taken place. And of course, I reject that for a couple of reasons, which we will eventually get into. But I believe that there is ample evidence to prove otherwise, that it did not take place in the past. So there were remarks made about the temple, the beauty of the structure, Jesus prophesying about its destruction, which happened, we know, in 70 A.D. That was Titus who came in and just destroyed it. And that was as a result of a judgment upon the Israelites, the nation of Israel, because they rejected the Messiah. And then the inquiry of the disciples, they ask, when will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? Now, in Matthew, that question is broken down into three parts. In the other Gospels, it is not. But history gives us a glimpse of what the temple and its accompanying buildings were like. 
the Roman historian Tacitus wrote that the place was immense in wealth. And the Babylonian Talmud said that he never saw the temple of Herod so fine a building. There's nothing that matched it whatsoever. It was just a beautiful structure. Now, what I would like to do is start in Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read through verses 3, 1 through 3. And then in Luke, I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. And Matthew 24, I will read verses 1 through 3. So starting in Mark chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now turn over to Luke chapter 21. In Luke 21 verse 5, It reads there, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now turn over to Matthew chapter 24 verse 1. It reads there, Jesus left the temple and was walking away with his disciples, came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So that's the three parts to the question. Now the temple proper that was there, the compound, it was begun being built by Herod the Great in 20 BC, but it was not till 64 AD that it was completed. And the words of the Olivet Discourse were spoken in AD 30 approximately, and so the building of the temple compound had been going on for 50 years. This is a long, ongoing project. And they would continue building for another 34 years until its destruction that I previously told you about. So after it was finished, it only took six years, and then it was destroyed. And it was a marvelous structure. If you go to the the Temple Mount today, if you look where the temple, they believe it used to stand, some people say, well, it stands where the Al-Asqa Mosque is, the Dome of the Rock. And I don't believe that. I believe it was to the north of that. And there's a place up there called the Dome of the Spirits. And you can actually stand on the bedrock. And that's what the Dome of the Spirits is. It's probably 10 feet in diameter. And it has a little dome over the top of it. And they believe that's where the Holy of Holy was. Or really close to right there. And that's what are, where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. Behind the curtain inside. So... That's the current belief that is there. But if you're on the Mount of Olives and you're facing east and you look over there, the only thing you see is the Dome of the Rock. You don't see the temple. It's completely been obliterated. And those stones have been broken apart and they were thrown over the walls. 
Now, if you were to walk along the, I think it's called the Rabbi's Tunnel, if you go to the Western Wall and you approach it heading east, you get into this court, it kind of slopes down towards the wall, there is an entrance to the left. And what happens is you go in this entrance and it goes up some stairs and then it starts heading down and it heads down to the base of the wall that actually goes around the temple area. It's called the Temple Mount. And if you look at some of those stones that were there, they were huge. Now, this room is a 40 by 40. I want to give you some kind of idea of one of the stones that is there. One stone is 44 feet long. And one estimate is about a 10 by 10. Another one says a 12 by 12. Now, the ceiling here, I think it's 14 feet tall. So imagine if you just took from here over, from there back, and from there almost to the ceiling. That's one stone. Would you like to try to move that? They say it's 500 tons. Now, I don't know how they did that. And by the way, where they quarried that stone was miles away. You could not put that on a modern-day truck and haul that thing around. I, I do some work for a trucking company, and they haul the biggest things that are out there. And these trailers are massive, just massive trailers. They might have 40 tires on them, just hauling vehicles around and big equipment. And that would not be able to handle that size of stone. And so they have no idea how they move these stones. Of course, if you listen to... Uh, What's that guy, uh, Eric Donovan or whatever he is? It's aliens did it. They came down and the aliens moved the stones. I think that that's just a bunch of poppycock. It has nothing to do with moving those stones. But they were able to do it. And by the way, to give you some kind of idea what we can move today, we can move over 20,000 tons. But you should see the size of the cranes that can move 20,000 tons. There's one uh, barge, I think it was either in China or Korea, they picked this thing up and it was over 20 tons, 20,000 tons. And so we have the technology now, but they did not have the technology back then and they were able to move those things, or they did have the technology back then, they were able to move and we just lost how they have done it. And so this is a magnificent structure and people would give all of their wealth or a big portion of their wealth to build this temple and the temple complex. And the stones were just beautiful. If you go along the uh, rabbi's tunnel, you'll get to this one section where they believe also the Holy of Holies, you would have gone to it from the base of the wall. You would have walked up and come up at the backside of the Holy of Holies. And on either side of that, which they have uncovered are two jade colored pillars and they're just smooth and beautiful. And you look at those and go, look at those things. And they're underground. They're several feet underground. But that's where the entrance was. And so if they had that different color marble going on, I can't imagine what the Temple Mount area looked at. And, of course, the people that were with Jesus, his disciples, they were a bunch of fishermen, some riffraff that were out there, a zealot and, you know, a, a rough and gruff Peter, the fisherman who was there and a tax collector and all these different characters that were there. But the fishermen, especially though, have gone down. They just would have marveled at what they saw in the Temple Mount. And as they're walking away, they say, look, look how beautiful that is. And Jesus says, you see all those? They're going to be gone. They're going to be torn down. So I'm sure that we're just their mouths probably opened wide. Well, when's this going to happen? 
I would want to know that. So when's that going to happen? If somebody came along and said the capital of the United States is going to be destroyed and they were prophetic, well, when's it going to happen? I want to know. I want to make sure I'm not there. But when's it, when's it going to take place? And so that's what their inquiry, inquiry was about. And Jesus answered them. He told them with great specificity. I'm going to be able to talk this morning. I just washed my tongue. Can't do a thing with it. And so, by the way, that's a really old joke. Mike McIntosh used to say that one. But there were four of these disciples, only four that came. It was Peter, James, John, and Andrew, two sets of brothers. These guys were brothers. And they were the ones asking, well, when's this going to happen, Jesus? And so they sat down privately. And who doesn't want to know the future? Remember, I, I told you there are four categories of things that we have questions about, origin, morality, meaning, and destiny. And if you want to add a fifth one, identity. But this destiny one is big. We want to know where we're going, what's going to happen. If we can do that, we can be a little more settled in our minds. We don't have to worry so much. And by the way, the scriptures themselves are 25 to 30% prophetic, which means it speaks of those things which are going to happen in the future. Some people will come along, and I, I know some good pastors and teachers. They say, oh, don't even talk about prophecy. It's so confusing. You don't need to know about it. It just gets people all flustered and they don't understand what's going on. And I think it is so simple and clear in Scripture. I think it's a ploy of the enemy that the enemy doesn't want us to know what's going to take place in the future. If you just read it for the way it is, he wanted his disciples who were fishermen to understand this. So how hard could it be? Remember when they were being persecuted after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the church started? They said, these men are uneducated, but they've been with Jesus. And so they, they really didn't know too much about anything except maybe fishing, but then they knew the scriptures because the Spirit of God was in them. And so this idea of understanding eschatology, which is the study of last things, is something that we need to be involved in. We need to be able to hold it in our hands solidly, so to speak, in a metaphorical sense, and be able to give it to others and say, this is what's going to take place. And again, there's been all kinds of conjecture about what is going to happen in the future. And people just keep on going off on different directions. Like there is not going to be a thousand year reign of Christ and everything is going to get better. And Jesus is going to come back when the church does its job and evangelizes everybody and gets elected to office and will install all these moral laws and everything will be wonderful. And Jesus will come back at that point. And that's just a false doctrine. That's something that has been ginned up. I can, you have to trust me when I say it is not going to get better. It is only going to get worse as we have seen. From my childhood until now, if you ask me, has it gotten better or worse? Well, I have a Dick Tracy phone, so it's better. And, you know, the watch, that, that's better. But everything else, morally and socially, it's just kind of taken a dive. And that's what Jesus is really concerned with and what he wants us to know. He wants us to be prepared. Now, we've been given a little bit of insight in the Old Testament, before we even get into Matthew here, about what the coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming is going to be like. I'd like you to turn over to Zechariah chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through the whole chapter there, 1 through 11. And it describes, in the Old Testament terms, when Jesus is coming back. It says, uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. 
It begins by saying, a day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. And by the way, just as a parenthetical thought here as we're going through this, Matthew 24 and 25 deal with the return of Jesus Christ and the events that immediately precede that during the seven-year tribulation period. And he lays it out in detail. Jesus promised to come back. And I'm giving you the scriptures here to point out exactly what he said. But I want you to understand this. As I've said many times in the past, the only reason I believe the words of the scripture is because it is prophetic. Now, Jesus prophesied at the writing, of course, in the hearing of the disciples, but also the writing that we have in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the temple would be destroyed. And it was destroyed. That prophecy was fulfilled. So everything I'm going to give you is going to be what's ahead of us. And even here in Zechariah chapter 14, it is what is ahead of us. It is what is in our future, not just the future of the time in which Zechariah wrote. Going on in verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountains moving to the north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be no light, no cold, no frost. It will be a unique day without time or daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea, and summer And in winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. The whole land from uh, Geba to Ramon, Rimen, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah, which is a desert area. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the Benjamin Gate to the side of the first gate to the corner gate and from the Tower of Hananel to the royal wine press. It will be inhabited never again Will it be destroyed? Jerusalem will be secure. And and so if you go to Jerusalem today and you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you're looking west, you see the east side of the wall. And on that east side of the wall is one gate. Now, when you go home, you can look it up and say, show me the gate beautiful or the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives. And you'll see this picture. And there's this double arched structure that is actually a gate. Now that gate that is there today is not the gate that Jesus walked through. It is more than likely underneath it that he would have walked through. Just like I told you on the rabbi's tunnel, the two columns were there. We were probably 40 feet underneath the ground to get to that. And then it goes upstairs to the Temple Mount area, but it's sealed off. They won't let you Uh, go through there so the same thing would be the case on the eastern side now in the prophecy of Zechariah here it says that Jesus comes down on the Mount of Olives which you can see in Google uh, Earth or in the uh, Google application you can find those pictures 
where you can be on the Mount of Olives and you can walk straight across over to that eastern gate or the gate. Beautiful. What's going to happen as soon as his foot touches down, there's going to be an earthquake and there's going to be a fissure open up and it's going to split half to the north and half to the south. And then Jesus is going to walk through that. Now, if you're over against the wall and you're looking back towards the Mount of Olives, all you see going all the way up the hill are graves. And their graves are above ground. They believe that when the Messiah comes, they'll be resurrected. And it's a lot closer just to take the lid off the grave than to come up from six feet underneath the ground. And so all the graves are on top of the ground. Those are all the Jewish graves. But as soon as you get to the bottom of the Kidron Valley and you get next to the wall on the eastern side, it's all Muslim graves over there. And the reason... That took place is next to the eastern gate. I mean, it's right up to the eastern gate back in the 16th century, A.D. 1540 through 41. An order was given by Suleiman the Magnificent, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. He wanted to put a graveyard there to keep the Messiah from entering in that gate. That's why he did it. And so if you if you look at the pictures and you look right next to the wall, you'll see these Muslim graves stacked right next to each other. But just across the Kidron Valley on the Mount of Olives, you will see all the Jewish graves that are up there because they're expecting to be resurrected. So you, you look at that and go, wow, what is going on with this? And the Suleiman character, he did not want anybody going through that, so he filled it up with concrete. Like, uh, let me see how much it was. It was... 16 feet of cement, 16 feet. He goes, I'm going to seal this up because I don't want the Messiah coming through there. Well, guess what? He's going to land his foot on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. He's going to walk through it anyhow. Now, why would he put the graves there to keep him from walking through? Because in the book of Leviticus, it says you're not to defile yourself. If you're a rabbi, a priest with a dead body, unless it's your family member, you're allowed to do that and you get an exception. But You're not allowed to walk amongst the dead bodies. And so that's why this sultan said, I'm planning a graveyard there and there's no way the Messiah is going to get through it. And Jesus is going to step down and go, ha ha. And he's going to walk right through that gate and go right to the Temple Mount area. And when that happens, the whole world, we know scripture tells us, the whole world is going to see him come back. Now, I've tried to imagine how this is going to happen. Some people would say, well, we have television no, I, I, I don't think that's how we're going to see Jesus Christ comes, coming back. The way that I believe it comes back. Remember when Jesus was born, there were shepherds in the field and angels appeared. Now, and it's like the heavens just opened up and there were all these angels and they were singing glory to God in the highest peace to people on earth. You know, all, it's just like, Wow, it's an incredible sight. I think it's going to be like that. It's going to open up, and here comes Jesus. Of course, he has the sweats on. It says King of Kings and Lord of Lords on the side of his, his legs, and he's going to come on his white horse, and guess who's behind him? It's us. We're the ones that are going to be with him, behind him, coming to earth. So it opens up. He probably circles the earth a couple of times because we know the sun and moon have been darkened. And all of a sudden he's coming out and he is the brightest of bright white. 
And so are we following behind him like lightning white. And so it's just, it's going to light up the whole earth and he's going to go around it and every eye will see him and he's going to come around and land on the Mount of Olives. Big earthquake splits open, walks through, wipes everybody out, says, that's it. You're done out of the pool. And he, he gets everybody out of the area that's not supposed to be there. The people who are the evil ones, they're bound up like the weeds, the parable, the weeds and the wheat. They're bound up and they are thrown at that particular time into Hades, not hell, but they are thrown into Hades. God deals with them and then he sets up his thousand year millennial reign. This is all in the book of Revelation. Now, what I'm going to do with this section of scripture is I'm going to spend a little time. We're going to park because 25 to 30 percent of scripture deals with this stuff. And we need to make sure we understand it. Now, the world has made caricatures of Christians. They walk around with these sandwich boards, repent for the end is near. You know, it's all true, but they make these Christians look out to be like fanatics. And, well, maybe some of them are fanatics and zealots. It doesn't mean their message is not true. There are some who have a ministry to preach on the street. More power to them. I I don't feel I'm called to that, but those who are called to that, like John the Baptist, go ahead, preach. Get out there and give the word out. But for the most part, all of us, we are to do the work of an evangelist. Just like Paul told Timothy to do it, it probably wasn't his gift. He said, but just do it. Know how to explain the gospel. Give it to people so that they are able to go to heaven, that in the rapture, Everyone who believes in Christ, those who have died previously and those who remain will all go to be with the Lord. Now, just a, a brief synopsis of the rapture. I'm going to go in depth with that a little bit. There are five views of the rapture. And if you don't know what the rapture is, you can do a little reading ahead of time before we get into it. But the rapture has just a few verses. And it, one of them is John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 1, it says, In my Father's house are many mansions, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may be also. He goes on to say, You know the way to the place that I am going. And they say, Where are you going, Lord? And he, you know, he explains that whole thing. So that's the first one. Jesus in heaven is making a dwelling place for us. Now, what is that exactly? Some people say, well, it's the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that's coming down. No, it's the bodies he's fashioning for. I, I don't know. He's just preparing a place for us. We're going there. He said, get ready. Have your shoes on, ready to go. Pack your bags. Oh, you don't need any bags because you're not taking anything. But he's just going to come get us. Now, it says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in about verse 13. I think it's to either 17 or 18. And it talks about in a flash and a twinkling of an eye, we'll all be changed. This is also in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and 51. And it says, we will be instantly transformed to have our new body. And how fast will it be? Faster than the speed of light. It's going to happen that fast. You're going to be here one second and boom, it's faster than that. You're going to be... So quickly translated, and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. It says in the clouds, we're going to meet him. He does not come to earth. We meet him in the air. And as we get up there, you're going to turn to each other, and I'm going to turn to you and go, look, 
look at you. And you're going to say, no, look at you. Oh, you're so bright and clean in that robe you got on. You're looking dapper. You know that it's just going to be a great event. And then it's off to heaven for the marriage supper of the lamb. Now, there is this thing called the seven-year tribulation, which Matthew 24 and 25 talk about. There's seven years in there. Just at the rapture, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the trigger that starts the seven years. There can be a gap in there. It can be months. It can be years from the time we are raptured to the time the tribulation starts. And we'll go into all that. There's one other passage that deals with this, I believe, in the Old Testament. And it is in the uh, book of Isaiah. And it is in chapter 26, uh, about verse 20. But a lot of the chapter deals with uh, going and hiding yourself in my chambers for a little while until his wrath has passed by. And if you go to First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, it deals with God's wrath coming to earth. And it says, we are not appointed unto God's wrath. By the way, even the ancient rabbis believed that there was going to be a time of trouble and a time of torment that the earth is going to experience before the Messiah comes back to earth. And they had it right in the Old Testament times. And we have a written document right now in the New Testament times and beyond that it's going to happen that way. All these disasters are going to come upon the land. And so that's the, the idea of the Temple Mount area. Jesus is going to come back there. He's going to split the land. He's going to walk through it and take his place over there on Mount Zion or the Temple Mount area. And he will enter it from the east. And it actually says this in Scripture, and it's alluded to in a couple of different places. But in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 1, this is... Speaking of a future event, if you go to the book of Ezekiel from about 37, 38 in there, it starts with the Valley of Dry Bones and 38 and all the way through 42, 43, it deals with a future event. It starts talking about the temple in the millennial reign of Christ. He's going to have a temple there. But it says this in 43 verse 1, then the man brought me to the gate facing east, the same gate. I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like a roar of rushing waters and the land was radiant with his glory, which means he's just shining and beaming everywhere. The vision I saw was like the vision. And by the way, whenever you see like or as it's a simile or a similitude of some kind where it, it's making a comparison. So he says, the vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the vision I had seen at the Kibar River and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. So we know he's going to go through that gate, not the one we see today, but probably down below that. It's just going to split wide open. Then the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And there is going to be a temple which is going to be rebuilt in that same area, in that same site. And Jesus will end up coming to his temple just like he did in the Old Testament through the spirit. The Shekinah glory of God filled the temple, Solomon's temple. And they couldn't even go in there because of the smoke. The glory of God was there. So Jesus was uh, having Ezekiel let us know in advance, both Old Testament and New Testament, what was going to be taking place. And there were, uh, at least Josephus, he said, and Josephus was a Jewish 
historian that existed at the time of the temple being destroyed. And he, he remarked that if anybody had seen it before the temple area and seen it after it was destroyed, it would have been hard to believe that anyone ever even existed up on that temple mount area. The destruction was so utterly complete. Now, in this, Jesus delivers several warnings. And these warnings in this passage here, you know, I'll read it to you. Verse 4 of Matthew chapter 24, if you'd look over there. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. So you have these birth pangs, which are false Christs, wars, excuse me, famines, earthquakes. Those four things happen. He says, those are the beginning of birth pangs. Then he has four more. After that, in verses 9 through 14, persecutions, false prophets, lawlessness, and the gospel of the kingdom being preached to the whole world. Those are the signs. Those are the things we're supposed to be looking for that are going to take place. And by the way, we are not looking for them because we're already in heaven. Some people in the Christian community would say, no, we're destined to go through the tribulation. And when Jesus starts talking about this, and we'll get to it where he says, it'll be like in the days of Noah. They were marrying and feasting, and they were doing all their stuff. They're buying and selling until the day that Noah entered the ark with his family. And then it immediately came upon them. And some Christians will say, well, God didn't take him out of the flood. He rose him above it, but he was still on earth. And they use that to say, well, you see, we're going to be in it, but we're going to be protected from the worst of it. That's just a conjecture of a mind that is just going sour. Scripture doesn't tell us that. Scripture tells us we are out of here. Not only does Scripture tell us that, but I'll, I'll be bringing you some, uh, at least one book, The Shepherd of Hermes, that talks about how the church does not go through the tribulation. And that was written in the first century. Now, when the Catholic Church got established and Augustine came along and thereafter, any doctrine that you purported to espouse that was different than what the Catholic Church taught, you would be killed. Like, they were so powerful. William Tyndale, who, uh, because he wanted to take the scriptures and translate them into English, the Pope had him killed for that. And you, you probably heard of Tyndale Publishers. Well, it's named after him because he simply wanted the people to have the word of God. And the church at that time said, no way, no how. We're the ones that are in control. And so that that's kind of the spirit of Antichrist. And Jesus told us there would be, quote unquote, false Christ, which would be out there. And these things are just the birth pangs that are going to be taken place that we need to be aware of. Now, 
After these first four signs, he brings a word of encouragement. He desires that they do not become unsettled, frightened, or alarmed. Now, if you knew, did you, did you hear the news that was just uh, last week? That there was this big meteor that's coming into our solar system from another solar system somewhere from somewhere else in the galaxy. It's not one that's in our orbit in the Coupier belt, which is way out there beyond the planets. No, this one's coming at a different angle and it's coming right through our solar system. And there's, Oh no, what are we going to do? Yeah. Well, you're not going to do anything. We, we know, and they're watching for these meteors, which are out there because they want to do the Armageddon thing, like the movie. You know, they want to make sure they go out there and they destroy these things that are going to come to earth. I could just see Satan setting this up because there are going to be some meteors which are going to hit the earth. One of them, it's going to destroy one third of the grassland, one third of the air and one third of the oceans and all the animals in the oceans, all the fish, all the creatures that are there are going to die and there's going to be a stench and it's going to be worldwide. And that's in the book of Revelation. It talks about that. And I could see us being, we got to get that meteor let's let's send up a space shuttle oh wait we don't have a space shuttle let's send up something else to stop it up there and they're watching these things and so they watch this meteor come through our solar system and they're so worried about it we don't have to worry about it the earth is not going to be destroyed now it's going to have an impact during the time of the tribulation period but if we're walking around like screaming memes pulling out our hair with it on fire going we're all going to die no we're not we're going to be raptured and that's what we're supposed to focus on is everything is just fine don't be alarmed but these incidents of the false christ the wars the famines the earthquakes all those are going to happen and he says, just relax, earthquake coming. You just go, oh, I got this. And you're swaying back and forth. It's no problem. The earth is not going to be destroyed. But there is going to be an earthquake that's going to be so severe, islands are going to disappear and mountains are going to be flattened. How big of an earthquake is that? We're going to be bouncing around on a piece of metal like a BB. I mean, not us, because we're in heaven. But everybody else who is here, that's how severe it is going to be. The buildings, they're not going to be standing anymore. They're going to be falling off on their side. This place is going to be a terrible place to exist. But Jesus said, there are going to be signs that are going to take place, and you need to be aware of them. Now, also, he spells out in this word alarm that he uses in verse 6. I'll read it again. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. This word alarmed is only used three times in the New Testament. The other one is used in Mark chapter 13, where it does talk about the tribulation period that's going to come and the birth pangs. The exact same passage that we're reading here is in Mark chapter 13, verse 7, but also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. And I'll read it to you beginning in verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So he was instructing him and them, and we'll probably go to First and Second Thessalonians as we're going through this end times eschatology here, just to give you the full picture. But he said, just relax. 
You're not going to have to worry about this. The church of Thessalonica was also worried that some people had died and they were probably going to miss the rapture. And Paul was correcting all of that bad theology. And apparently it came because of a letter that somebody else had written saying that it was from Paul. And so he says, nope. That's not what happened. This is what you need to know. And so he doesn't want them to be disturbed, to be moving, to be shaken in their faith. When we see the wars like, for instance, it says when there are wars, a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That is a Hebraic idiom for a worldwide conflict. How many worldwide conflicts have we had? We've had two. That's a sign. That's what Jesus talked about. And so we know that we're in the last days and approaching the end because these are the birth pangs that are taking place. Now, for those of you who have had children, you women, I know none of you men have, but you women who have had that, you know how it starts first. It's the Braxton Hicks, right? You go, ow, that hurt. And and then you go on and you do your thing and then all of a sudden the water breaks and they come with some force. You, go, <laughs> you, you start breathing a little bit and then you get to the place of delivery and you get this out of me. You know, you just want to choke the doctor or something to have the baby arrive. Well, that's the same thing. Jesus used that on purpose. It's like birth pangs. World War One, World War Two. Oh, that hurt. Yeah, that was that was a little strong. Well, what about the earthquakes that have taken place? Well, first, before we go too far, we want to make sure we're not disturbed by any report which is out there. The next thing for us, prophetically on God's timeline, is the rapture, which I will get into and describe the different views that deal with that. But the second thing he mentions is false Christs. Now, if you want to look it up on the Internet, there are names on the internet with false Christs and you go to Wikipedia. There are 35 of them since uh, what the uh, 1800s or something that are listed on there. Reverend Sun Young Moon uh, on there. And uh, the guy in Waco, Texas. Uh, what was it? Yeah. That guy, you know, he claimed to be the Christ. There are so many people that claim to be Jesus Christ. The latest one, I think it was down in Brazil that he was arrested for, uh, sexual misconduct or something down there, and he is a millionaire. And it, we don't have to worry about these guys who claim to be Jesus Christ. Jesus said, nope, this is when I'm coming back. I'm coming back at the rapture, in the clouds. Don't worry about it. <coughs> but they would attempt to deceive the people. Now, how many people get deceived by these individuals? thousands if not millions of people get deceived and why why are they so easily deceived when someone like this comes along they don't know the scripture you need to know the scripture that is our sword and everything that sets us up sets itself up pretentiously against the jesus christ and the gospel we're to pull out that sword and say no way no how and make some sushi and move on we are we are not to handle or touch or taste that which is false doctrine and if you handle 
proper doctrine all the time, you immediately recognize that which is false doctrine. Just like the bankers, they handle the cash all the time. They immediately know, oh, this is not the right material here. This is counterfeit. And they throw it out. They put it in a bin. They say, let's find the person who did that. And so we want to make sure we call out those who have false doctrine and we praise those who have proper doctrine. Now, why would they want to deceive us? Why? I mean, the grandiose things that they think of themselves in their own mind. We need to make sure we stand up against that. But this deception is out there in the world today anyhow. It's everywhere. Everywhere you turn, there is somebody who is trying to deceive you into doing their will. Have you guys ever talked to a telemarketer? They want to convince you that you need something that you are convinced you don't need. And they want to keep you on the phone and convince you. You ever walk onto a car lot? Yeah. And you hear the uh, salesman coming. They're they're coming across the car lot and they, they want to get you. And they know that if you walk off that car lot, chances are you're not going to buy a car. So they do everything they can to keep you on that lot. There's sales strategies that are developed for this stuff. And we are supposed to make sure we are not easily deceived, that we are not gullible, that we understand what's going on. And you know who's an expert at this today? Not just the false prophets that are out there. Now, some of these things I'm going to tell you, some of you might be offended by some of them, but I want to tell you there's deception surrounding these things and we should not be deceived by the deception which we hear in the media the media i just want to tell you the ones with the capital letters the big three capital letters i'm just going to name them cbs nbc abc then there's msnbc the cnn all of those, the New York Times, all of those guys, they are out to deceive. And by the way, they are of the spirit of Antichrist. You don't need a physical Christ, but you need somebody behind the scenes that is orchestrating things. And they want to deceive the very Christians that exist in this country. By the way, if you're a Christian and if you're white, you have privilege and, sorry, you have to be taken out so to speak now what kind of deception are they involved in and it again i'm I'm pointing this out because there's deception all around us and when it becomes in the christian church we certainly want to recognize it but you have to get used to recognize it for instance the media are experts at deception how about man-made global warming did you see the latest we only have 18 months and we're going to die That is the newest one that is out there. And I just read an article about 50 years of telling us we only have a year, 10 years, months to live. First, it was the Ice Age in the 70s that was going to come. Then it was global warming. Now it's just climate change. Why do they want to push this? Because they want your money. Because you get a global tax because of that. That's one. If you get rid of guns, most murders will stop. Exactly. Global governance is the best form of government. We evolve from apes. Socialism is the best form of government. All white men are racist. All minorities are victims. It is our patriotic obligation to house, feed, and clothe the world. All corporations are evil. There's a war on women. Have you ever heard the phrase, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? 
I, women have so much power. I don't need, I'm, don't listen to women. I'm going to tell the men. Women have so much power in this life, they don't even know how much power they have. Okay, ladies, you can listen now. <laughs> the fetus in the womb is not a baby. It's not a human being. Polar bears are going extinct and the ice caps are melting. Oil is destroying the world. There are over 100 genders. The American flag is an offense. And gay marriage is moral. By the way, I, I'm going to tell you this one. I found out about this last week. Is Candy in here? I think Candy told Patty. Patty told me. And, well, what, what, what Candy, I think it was Candy, said that over at our high school over here, El Cap, that a student had a American flag sticker on their vehicle. Went, yes, this, went to park in the parking lot, and they said, you cannot park in here with that sticker because somebody might be offended. So you have to move your vehicle off the premises or take off the sticker. Wow. Yeah, that's what, me too. I, yeah, my garage looked much better after I heard that. Because I went in and cleaned it up. I was so angry, you know. I, I can't believe that's such a deception. You're offended by a flag which is out there. And we're supposed to buy into this. And then free speech is not free anymore. You can't say certain things. And these are people who are attempting to deceive us on what right and wrong is. And when it creeps into the church... We need to be able to defend it. So we train ourselves with that which is outside the church, and we train ourselves in doctrine so we know whenever it appears, you can immediately say, uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that that's correct, and here's why. Here's the scripture to rebut. So there are false Christs, and by the way, when I did look on Wikipedia, 35 Christian messiahs were listed in the, uh, from the first century until now. Are there many more than that? Absolutely. There are hundreds if not thousands of people who claimed to be this Messiah. And of course, uh, as I mentioned before, the Hebrew idiom for world war, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And as I've already mentioned, we've had two world wars. And then he says that famines will also come. Now, as the population increases, the famine and its direct effect also increases. And I have a chart here, and it goes all the way back to the 19th century. And in the 1870s, 20 million people died from a famine. In the 1920s, 16 million people died from a famine. In the 1940s, 18 million people. In the 1960s, 16 million people died just from famine. So these are signs to us. Well, there's many people dying because of these famines. Now, are they increasing, decreasing? It just says there's going to be famines in various places. It doesn't say if it's going to increase or decrease. As a matter of fact, from the 1970s on, the famines and their resulting horror from that have dramatically decreased. Because of the prosperity of the United States, it has affected the entire world. The rising tide raises all boats, and there is more prosperity throughout the entire world as a result of God using our country. Now, what about earthquakes? <clears throat> now, I have a pet peeve with this. I have heard for all of my Christian existence that earthquakes are increasing 
in frequency and in severity. And if you go to the USGS GS site, the United States Geological Service, and you can look up how many earthquakes there have been in any particular decade and how strong they have been, and there is not a direct increase in them. There have been big earthquakes which have taken place and have killed thousands of people, but the scripture says there will be earthquakes in various places. That's what it says. And we take it a little bit beyond that. There are more earthquakes. Well, no, there are big earthquakes. Lots of people are dying. Same thing with famines. Big famines. Lots of people are dying. These are all birth pangs. Now, how far along do you think we are in the birth pangs? See, that's the question. Are we real close? Now, watch. We'll leave today and we'll have a big earthquake. You go, oh, you know, we'll get all excited about something like that. Or, you know, we, we look at that and some false Christ will pop up in the news. We'll go, oh, there's another one. That is a sign that the birth pangs have begun. Now, how far along are we? Well, I think there's debate about that. I don't think we're too far away if you judge how much evil is in the world. And we know that violence will increase. How much violence is there in the world? Oh, it's just like blowing its lid everywhere. But I promise you this, it can get much worse. And so as it does, and we've we've gone through the first four items there. And the next time we're going to probably go through the rapture and the other items that are on the list. And we're just going to, like I said, take our time going through uh, this Olivet Discourse given on the Mount of Olives by Jesus. He wants us to know specifics about what is going to take place in our future. It was written for us. And so our job is to study it. I would encourage you, read Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 13. And if you have enough gumption, go back in the Old Testament, read Zechariah again, chapter 14. Make sure you go to Ezekiel and read Ezekiel, uh, chapter 38 through 43. All of that, you just get a handle on what's going on. Daniel, uh, you can read the whole book of Daniel, but pretty much Daniel chapter 9, chapter 7, and towards the end of the, the book there, you can read all of that. And some of it, you're going to go, what does all this mean? Well, we're going to find out what it all means and what we can expect. But the main thing to take away today is... Relax. If there's an earthquake, okay, you just kind of roll with it. You know, if there's a disaster somewhere, well, the Lord said it would happen. Let me pray for them. Let me see what I can do uh, to help those individuals. Let me, let me uh, organize something and we'll go and help them. We'll go and assist them. But the whole time, we're just supposed to remain calm, just like Jesus did when he was on the boat of the Sea of Galilee. The disciples were in the boat. They were bailing water left and right. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping in the boat. And the disciples woke him up. Don't you care if we drowned? And he goes, hey, they. And he woke up. And then he rebuked the wind and it was all done. And they were probably just amazed going, wow. You know, we're, we're all going to suffer some degree of um, retribution for believing what we believe. Persecution, difficulty. That's just part of life. But the rest of it, we're not supposed to worry about this. We're supposed to rejoice that the Lord is going to bring the evil in this world to the end. Our job is just to share it so we can bring as many people with us as we can into the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so insightful. You have told us the future. And Father, I know people go to 
mediums and soothsayers and fortune tellers to find stuff out. You've already told us. We have your word and it is a sure thing. We give you thanks for it, Lord, and help us to walk in the peace, comfort, and joy that you have destined for us. We thank you for your care. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.